You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Judges. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. We are going to start a, uh, a new book tonight. We finished Joshua a couple weeks ago. And we're going to start the book of Judges tonight. So if you've got your Bibles, open with me to Judges chapter 1. How many of you guys would say you're familiar with the book of Judges? Anybody? Okay, good. So we'll familiarize ourselves together. That's what I love about just going through the Old Testament. And some of these books are, are books that you probably maybe have never read before. Maybe uh, you're not familiar with them. And, and, man, together we are just journeying and learning and, uh, and hearing from the Lord in the Old Testament, which, as we've said uh, before, is really the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so we want to see Jesus on the pages of the Old Testament. It, in theological terms, uh, we want to see the, the Christocentric implications of the Old Testament. We want to see Jesus come alive to us as he did with those disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember in Luke 24... After his resurrection, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus gave them a Bible study where he pointed out himself throughout the entire New Te- uh, Old Testament. Amazing. And so we see Jesus here in Judges. We saw Jesus in Joshua. I'm excited about this study. And Judges is really the tragic sequel to Joshua. In Joshua, the nation was obedient to God and victorious. Remember that? In Joshua, we saw just victory and we saw them conquering the land. In Judges, however, the nation is rebellious toward God and defeated. The key verse, if you flip all the way back to the end of Judges, the last verse really sums up the entire book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's really the the key verse. This verse is the theme of the entire book. There was no king. There was a leadership vacuum at this time. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes, or what you might call philosophically classic existentialism. Do you guys remember hearing about, learning about existentialism. Have you ever heard of Kierkegaard or Nitschke? Have you guys ever heard of any of those guys? Okay, good. <laughs> they, they basically taught, and, and really before the term existentialism ever came to be, but they taught that there was no ultimate standard of right or wrong. Now, you may not be familiar with the term existentialism, but certainly you're familiar with the term or with the thought The concept that there's no ultimate standard of right or wrong, right? Everyone just does what's right in your own eyes. I have my personal rights, and that trumps everything else. What I want, what seems right to me, that's what matters. And everything else just sort of filters through that. So, hey... You do what's right in your eyes, I'll do what's right in my eyes, and we're all happy. Is that true, though? Not at all, huh? 
In fact, the more personal freedom one seems to have, if you've ever noticed this, the more personal freedom that one seems to have, the more in bondage that person becomes. As the old adage, the more you do as you please, the less you are pleased with what you do. Proverbs 14.34 kind of sums this up. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The purpose of this book is, is really fairly simple. It's to reveal that God's judgment against sin is certain. God will judge sin. But His forgiveness and restoration to relationship is just as certain to those who repent. And so that's really the purpose of this book, to reveal God's judgment against sin, but then also to reveal His amazing grace as we just sung about. And so it's kind of this this polar opposite, dark and light. We have the darkness of man's sin. We have the light of God's amazing grace kind of on polar opposites here in this book. The period of the Judges stretches about 350 years of Israel's history. From the time of Joshua's conquest that we studied in the book of Joshua as they finally entered the promised land and conquered the land. From that time until the time of Eli and Samuel who were the last of the Judges before God sort of reluctantly gave them a king by the name of Saul. Because they so longed for a king. Because the theocracy that God wanted to have, where he was their king, he was their ruler, that wasn't good enough for them. They wanted to have a monarchy. They wanted to have a king. They wanted to have a man that they could look to. And man, aren't there implications of that in our own life? But these judges, they, 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 they weren't classic judges like we think of judges with a robe and in a courtroom and all rise and that kind of thing. They were leaders. They were men that God raised up, often military leaders, to free them from these nations that that God would allow to come in and to rule over them and to terrorize them because of their sin. Most scholars believe that Samuel was the author of this book. It was most certainly written during the time of the kings, as we just read in that verse, that in those days there was no king. And so it was something unique and unusual to those that Samuel was writing to. Kind of tell us there was a king at the time this book was written. So it was probably written around the time of the, the end of Samuel's life. He probably wrote it. The history of the judges, about 350 years. There really is a definite pattern to this book. It's a four-part sequence that repeatedly occurs throughout the book in this phase of Israel's history. It's really four parts, if you're a note-taker. First of all, you see Israel's departure from God, their sin, their rebellion. Then God chastises them, He judges them, in allowing an enemy nation, seven of them, as we'll look at, an enemy nation to come in and to defeat them, to rule over them. So they sin, then we see God's judgment over them as a nation comes in and terrorizes them. Then we see Israel sorrowful over their situation, 
not quite certain if they're sorrowful over their sin because they keep doing it over and over and over again. I don't know if it's repentance. It's more of a sorrow that that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, what we might call a, a worldly sorrow. And you can have emotions about sin. You can have a feeling of sorrow about sin and yet not be repentant. And there would be sorrow on their part. There would be prayer. They would ask God to deliver them. And then God would raise up these judges to do just that. And so Israel's sin, God's grace in this four-part sequence throughout the book. It really is an amazing illustration of our own life. Because how many of you can look at your life and say, Man, I see myself departing from God, rebelling against God. I see God's judgment. I see His, His hand of chastisement in my life as that sin finds me out, then I I have sorrow, I have repentance possibly, I have guilt and shame over the, the sin, and then God allows His grace to flow into my life and, and He frees me from that. But then oftentimes the pattern repeats itself, doesn't it? And we can relate to that. What we find out about man, about ourselves in the book of Judges is really depressing. But what we find out about God and His grace is amazing. And so again, there's that that divine kind of tension going on here. Man's sin, and it's ugly. And and God's grace, which is beautiful. And so we're going to try, we're going to attempt to get through the first two chapters of Judges. Even more amazing than that, we're going to try to get through this entire book in about six studies so that we can do that question series that we're going to do this summer where you guys get to to ask some questions and we're going to look at those um, seven or eight questions over uh, a seven-week period during the summertime. So about six weeks in Judges, so we're going to try to just really kind of speed race through this. So verse 1 of chapter 1. Now after the death of Joshua... It came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And so, after the death of Joshua, this now opens a new period in the history of Israel. There is now a leadership vacuum. Because you remember when Moses died, Joshua was the clear successor, right? I mean, it was no question at all. It was a no-brainer. Joshua would lead them and they were happy to follow him. But now Joshua's dead and there's no real successor to Joshua. And they're wondering, who's going to lead us? Who's going to to carry the the mantle? Have you ever been in a place in your life where you just kind of feel like alone and you feel like, where, where am I going? Who's going to lead me? Maybe when you left your house for the first time. I remember driving away from my house when I went to college, just kind of thinking, like, this is kind of unusual. You know, I'm on my own. I can eat when I want. I can go where I want. But it was kind of scary at the same time. And I think this is how the nation of Israel feels. Joshua's dead. Moses is dead. Who's going to lead us? 
It, it's really a new period in the history of Israel. And if they had allowed God to lead them, they would have been fine. The problem was, rather than falling into His arms, they, they did what was right in their own eyes. Every successive generation forgets about the lessons, the struggles, and the pr- principles from the previous generation. It's just something innate in us. It's something sinful about us that we don't typically learn the lessons from the previous generation. And if, if you're a young person here tonight, man, learn from your parents. Learn from their mistakes. Don't have to make your own. I don't know why we think that's wisdom, that I've got to test this out for myself. That's not wisdom, that's foolishness. I've got to learn this myself. I've got to go down this road myself. Now, it's normal, it's common, but it's not wisdom. It's foolishness. Allow the mistakes that you've seen and you've heard about and the lessons and the struggles and the principles that have been passed on to you, allow those to mold you and to shape you. Unfortunately, that's not what the children of Israel do here. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. And so God's going to raise up the tribe of Judah to lead. And Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites. Now, this isn't literally Judah and Simeon. They're dead for a long time here. But this is the tribes. This is their offspring. And I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. So they kind of group up, Judah and Simeon, and they're going to go and attack, and they're going to conquer the land that was apportioned to them, and they're going to help each other out. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adoni, Bezek, and Bezek, and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adoni, Bezek fled, the, the king fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Sounds awesome, right? And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Verse 7, you guys, is a great illustration of the principle of sowing and reaping. Galatians chapter 6, you don't need to turn there, but we find this principle laid out for us by Paul. The principle of sowing and reaping. Now we know this principle agriculturally, that when you plant a seed in the ground, that whatever it is you plant, it is going to grow up. If you plant corn, you're going to reap corn. Now, around here, that could be a little different. You could plant corn and then never see it, you know. But somewhere in the ground there, there was supposed to be corn coming up. If you plant corn, you're not going to get tomatoes. You understand the illustration. And that's what Paul's referring to here in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. He says, do not be deceived. Do not deceive yourself. God is not mocked. 
For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. See, Adoni Bezik was understanding this principle long before Paul wrote it. That there were 70 men under his table that he had cut off their thumbs and big toes. He had tortured them. And so now he was reaping what he had sowed in his own life. Paul goes on in Galatians 6 to say, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. You guys, if we are sowing to our flesh, then it's just natural that we're going to reap the consequences of the flesh, which is corruption. And so if you're sowing to your flesh all the time, if that's what you're feeding is your flesh, then you will of your flesh reap corruption and destruction. Just like when you plant seed in the ground, you expect that particular crop to be what you reap. And so when you guys, when I plant the flesh and I feed the flesh, that's what we're going to reap in our life. And conversely, when we plant to the Spirit, when we sow to the Spirit, we reap of the Spirit. And so when you run into people that you think, man, they just emulate Jesus. The love, the grace, the servant's heart, the obedience, their worshipful attitude. When you, when you meet people like that, and hopefully those are the kind of people that we are, but when you meet people like that, it isn't because they have some kind of a magnanimous personality and it isn't because God just gifted them somehow and, and they're really close to Him. It's because they've been sowing to the Spirit. What you see is years of sowing, of reading the Word and having God put His Word into their heart. As Colossians talks about, allowing the Word of God to dwell richly in you. And when you plant the Word of God, you reap the Word of God in prayer. When you see people like that, that model Jesus, there's years of prayer. Of studying the Word. Of serving others. Of giving their life as a living sacrifice. It didn't just happen that day. You see, they've been sowing to the Spirit. And of the Spirit, they're reaping everlasting life. See that? You guys, that's what we want to be doing. There's a great illustration here for us. That it isn't a shock when you run into people who are Christians, but man, they're just fleshly and they're carnal and they're unloving and they're not servants, and they don't care about people, and you don't see Jesus in them at all, even though they say they are a follower of Jesus. There's no sort of mystery about that either. What it is is that they've been sowing to the flesh, and of the flesh they're reaping corruption, and it's spilling over onto you. And those aren't the kind of people we want to be. 
But it doesn't just happen by osmosis, you guys. It's in the secret place. It's, it's going away as Jesus did and sowing to the Spirit. Verse 8, Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and they set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba. And they killed Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Deber. Then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. I don't know what Aksa thought about this, but this is what Caleb decided. Whoever takes Kirjath Sefer, I'll give my daughter. And Caleb was this warrior. He had this just faith, as we saw at the end of Joshua, that was amazing. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, so this is Caleb's nephew, Othniel, who we will see next week as the first judge that God raises up. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, took it. So he gave him his daughter, Oxa, as wife. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now without reading into this too much, I think we see a couple things here. One is we see Caleb's daughter having a very similar kind of mindset in a very similar kind of faith that Caleb had. You remember Caleb who who said to Joshua at the end of Joshua's life, give me the mountains where the Anakim are. I'm going to go and I'm going to destroy them. The giants, give me the hard place. Yeah, I know I'm 80 years old, but man, I've got one more battle and victory in me. Remember that Caleb was the guy that came back with a good report in numbers, only he and Joshua and everybody else, the rest of the ten spies, came back and said, oh, there's giants in the land, we don't want to go there, freaked out. Caleb was this guy that just trusted the Lord. And his daughter seems to have that same kind of mentality. Parents, grandparents, your children are learning more from you than you realize. You are rubbing off on them. If you are a pessimistic person who just is like, the, this is the end of the world and the sky is falling and Eeyore kind of, you know, oh, it's just a horrible life, you know. You'll start to see that in your kids. But if you're a person that just says, you know what, God's going to provide. God's going to work. God's going to do an awesome thing here. Your kids will will see that in you. If you're a person that just serves the Lord, no matter what's going on, your kids see that, that you're modeling that. 
That it's not just service to the Lord when it's convenient. That, yeah, there were, were times in my life when my mom and dad were on fire for the Lord, but, but then, you know, they got busy and then things started happening and, and trials came in and difficulties and, and, and they took a, a, a break for a while. There's real strong communication going on there to your kids. It, it amazes me how that we don't see this more often with our kids. And, and I don't mean to, to step on any toes, but I'm really good at doing that anyway. But I don't understand how parents can think that bringing their kids to every conceivable sporting event and tournament all over the world and never being involved in ministry, being gone from their home and from church for weeks and months on end, and where God is just put aside, essentially. I don't see why parents can't realize that that is communicating something very strong to your kids. Priorities. What we see here with, with Caleb is that his daughter really picked up on the strengths of his life. I think we also see here that we can just go before the Lord and ask Him things and not demand from God. But what does the Bible say? Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. What does James tell us? We have not because we ask not. And we see here with, with his daughter, she just says, hey, give me a blessing. We shouldn't be afraid to ask God for that. To ask God to, to come through in an area. To ask God to, to provide. To ask God to, to heal. Now whether he does that or not is up to him and his sovereignty and his will. And we don't demand from God. And we don't think that, you know, if we say it, then we're going to receive it and all this baloney. But the principle laid out is, is ask. And what does Jesus say? Ask according to my will. We pray in Jesus' name, which has nothing to do with closing our prayer in Jesus' name. Which sort of becomes vain repetition if you think about it. Just in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. What, what Jesus meant was not close your prayer in Jesus' name. What Jesus said is be cognizant and be mindful that your prayers are in my name. That what you are asking for would be something that I would want to give you. And so praying for new cars and new homes and full bank accounts, not necessarily the heart of Jesus but asking that God would give you your neighbor for the kingdom of God. Asking that God would restore that relationship that's estranged. That's the heart of Jesus. Asking God to, to gift you in certain ways so that you can be more effective for His kingdom and to serve Him. That's the heart of Jesus. 
asking God maybe to bless you financially so that you can give more and that you can bless, that could be the heart of Jesus. Now, he may not do that for you because he may know that you can't handle it. But if your motives are right and, and, and he knows that you can handle that, then that is a prayer that Jesus might just answer for you. But not being afraid to go to the Lord and ask him for stuff and be confident in that, that he wants to answer our prayers. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath, and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers. But they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland, because they had chariots of iron. Now, is that true? Is that a true statement? It's not true at all. That they could not defeat the enemy here because the enemy had some new technology. The chariots of iron is, I mean, remember what the psalmist said? Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. This had nothing to do with it, the chariots of iron. It was that they did not trust the Lord enough. That they saw the chariots of iron, and, and we got to think of like tanks and stuff. We got to think of, you know, nuclear bombs and, and the latest technology. You remember in the first Gulf War, remember the, the, the clips that you would see on the news? And we'd have these tanks just rolling through Kuwait. And there would be Iraqi soldiers wearing like shorts and a shirt that says Coca-Cola on it. And the guy has like a sawed-off shotgun. Something he bought at like the thrift store or found in a ditch or something. Remember that? They had like police gear. And they're trying to fight against the most powerful military in the world. That's kind of what I picture here with the Israelites and, and, and the, the chariots of iron. The Israelites were kind of like the Iraqis. But it didn't have anything to do with that because God already told them that it was theirs, right? This wasn't like a leap of faith here that we talked about on Sunday. Remember I said sometimes we just leap out and we think, okay, well, God's going to provide. Well, we have no revelation to attach to that. So we just take this leap of faith. That's not faith. What they had was the revealed word of God that said, I am going to give you this land. No ambiguity, no question. So they could take that word of God and they could take it to the bank. But chariots of iron. Oh, well, God's word must not be true in this circumstance. God must not have meant it because, Lord, have you seen these guys? I mean, they got tanks and missiles. We're just going to leave them where they're at. They're okay there. We'll just, we won't take that portion of the land. Well, this con compromise didn't stop here. And it never does, does it? When we compromise a little bit, 
It becomes easier to compromise in other areas. Oh, chariots of iron. Oh, over here, fortified walls. Oh, over here, powerful military strategy. We'll just leave them. We'll leave them. Oh, we're, we're content to take a very small part of what God had given us. And I've shown you guys the map. We don't have it up tonight, but God gave them this huge portion of the land and they took just a real small part of it because of this, because of little compromise. Ah, it's okay, just leave them be. They've got chariots of iron. And then little by little, it became a lot of what God had given them, they left because of their fear. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. You notice how Caleb has no problem conquering what God gave to him. These were the most powerful men in all of the land. And just simply says, he expelled them. Because he took God at his word. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The ramifications of sin. We think, that's no big deal. But then we see those same patterns and those same decisions being made by our own children and by their children. We think it's not a big deal, but the the implications and the repercussions are a big deal, you guys. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. Basically, verses 8 through 26 are just a review of some of the history of Joshua. We actually kind of looked at these things in Joshua. And then verses 27 through 36 really shows Israel's moral declension and that it began with incomplete obedience that we've already talked about. It goes through all these different tribes and how they didn't conquer the land that God gave them, that they compromised, that it was incomplete, that they would take a little bit, that they would go into their portion. Remember God gave each tribe a portion except the Levites? Each tribe was given a portion, and they would go in, and they would just take a little bit. It it would kind of like, maybe we can think of it like this, that, that all of central Oregon was given to one tribe. And you come in off the Ochicos and you, you come into Prineville and you say, you know what, this is good enough. Just, I'll just take this. But God has given you Madras, and maybe you think, oh, I don't care about Madras anyway, but <laughs> God's given you Redmond and, and Bend and Sisters, and you don't even go check it out because you heard, oh man, 
They're fierce over there. We'll just leave it. We'll just stay right here in our little area, and this is good enough. But you see, every tribe did that. And so what you had was this little piece of land that they ended up conquering because they all disobeyed. They all didn't trust God. They all compromised. They all had incomplete obedience. And then as we move into chapter 2 real quickly, we see that Israel's moral declension continued. It started with incomplete obedience. A little compromise. Didn't seem like that big of a deal. I don't think they sat around the campfire at night thinking about the implications and thinking about years ahead and, and what would happen. I think they just thought, yeah, this is good enough. This is cool. We're blessed. But that little compromise and that incomplete obedience then began to open the door for bigger moral failure, which was the worship of false gods, which became Israel's Achilles heel and the destruction of their nation on more than one occasion. And so the little choice became a bigger problem. And you guys, as we talked about, that when we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. It starts with just small compromises. But then it begins to escalate in our life. And we will reap corruption. And they began to worship false gods. The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. I will never break my covenant with you. You guys, as fickle and as fleeting and as disobedient as we are, the opposite is true of God. God is rock solid in his promises. What does Paul tell us in 2 Corinthians? That that the promises of God are in him, yes and amen. That we can take God's promises and we can take them to the bank and they always come to pass. Even when we fail to hold up our end of the bargain, he will never break his covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. Make no covenant with these people. I've made a covenant with you, and that's it. Don't compromise. Don't feel like you need people. God's saying to them, You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? And so he's bringing to the remembrance the fact that he said to them, don't make a covenant with the, the people of this land. And yet they did that. He told them to tear down the altars. They didn't do that. They worshiped false gods. And so God asked them a very simple question. Why have you done this? Why are you worshiping false gods? And why, what's the answer? Because their God was so small. 
the, the God that they knew and loved and were supposed to trust had become so small to them that they would rather worship a piece of metal or wood. And the same tendency is in our life when God becomes so small to us, when we've sowed to our flesh to the point where God is not even part of our thinking any longer. And we begin to worship the things of this world. And we begin to lay our lives down at the altars of the patterns of this world. Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. God wanted to bless them, but these gods that they're following will destroy them. They will be a thorn in their side. You guys, sin always seems so alluring, and the flesh always tells us that it will be exciting, and it will be fun, and it will be fulfilling, and yet it's a thorn in our side. It's a snare to us. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. And so this is kind of a, a recap. And so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him. And when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done in Israel. And this is a sad testament to, to the parenting that Joshua died and now this new generation is there and they don't know the Lord and they don't know of what he had done for them. You remember all the times that God spoke to them and said, tell your children all that I've done. Put memorial stones here. Remind them of my works. And they didn't do it. You guys, parents, grandparents, maybe you have grandkids that, that have kids that don't know the Lord or are not following the Lord, then you need to be that influence whenever you can. You need to be reading the word of God to your grandkids. You need to be praying with them. You need to be giving Jesus to them. But parents, we, we need to be pouring Jesus into our kids. We need to be pointing them to Jesus every opportunity we can get. And that includes discipline. Don't just punish your kids so that you can release your anger. It shouldn't be punishment. It should be discipline. And you should tell your kids, okay, this is why 
you're getting a spanking or you received a spanking or this is why I'm putting you on restriction or this is why I'm having you sit on the couch until you change your behavior. This is why I'm taking computer games and the TV away from you. You explain it to your kids and tell them about the, the bigger picture and point them to Jesus and tell them of his love and his forgiveness and his grace. Read the word to them. And there's, and there's great tools out there for, for kids. There's, there's Bibles that are, that are at their level. Don't get the old family Bible out and expect your kids to be engaged in that. Don't bore your kids with the Bible. But here's the most important thing, you guys. Live it. Live it out before your kids. And they will catch that. They will see that. They will want that. And you won't have any problem. You won't have any problem with them later on in life questioning whether Jesus is real or not because they've seen it their entire life. Now, they may go through hard times. And I have little kids, so I'm not trying to stand up here and claim to to be an expert on what happens when kids get older. But clearly, our children are watching us and they're looking for us to show them the reality of Jesus. That it's not a religion, that it's not a concept, that it's truth, that it's real, that it absolutely affects everything that we do. Everything. Not just some stuff, but everything. Everything is about Jesus. Whether we're on vacation, whether we're at church, whether dad's at work, whether mom's at home doing the dishes, whether we're playing sports. Jesus is always first. And kids will pick up on inconsistencies real fast. They might not say anything. In fact, they may enjoy the inconsistencies. But later on in life, when they bag it, which 8 out of 10 high school seniors do, later on in life, when they bag it, we need to look no further than to our own compromise and our own inconsistencies and our own failure to give Jesus to our kids. Now, kids may wander off for a while and they may come back. I'm not saying that this is a hard and fast rule, but what I'm saying is, is that we need to look at our own life and our own parenting and say, am I giving Jesus to my kids? In every opportunity, is Jesus being spoken and taught and revealed to my children? In verses 11 through 23 of chapter 2, we really see this pattern that I talked about, this four-step process that runs through the entire book. It says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. These were the false gods. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. You guys, sin is pleasurable for a, for a time. There's no question about that. And your kids need to know that. Don't, don't tell your kids that, 
that sex is not fun. Because they're going to find out real quick that isn't true. So don't, don't lie to them. It is fun for a season. Tell your kids, though, how God's designed it to be with that one man, that one woman. And there's real fulfillment in that. But we ought not lie to our kids. We shouldn't tell them that, hey, lying isn't pleasurable. It is. Because it gets you out of whatever situation you're in for the moment. But when you reap the consequences, it's distressing. It's destructive. And so just be honest, you guys. We've got to be honest with our kids. We can't tell our kids, oh, man, partying's horrible. You're not going to like it. Because they're going to find, I actually do like it. It's kind of fun. But the consequences of, of our sin and telling our children about the word and showing them the consequences of, of sin in the Old Testament. That's why the Old Testament's here, by the way. Because we can tell our kids, hey, fornication and adultery is bad. Don't do it. Okay. But then we can say, look, God said, do not have sex with people that you're not married to. Bottom line. So we give them a principle from the Word of God. Then you take them to the life of David and you show them David's compromise. And you show them David's decision to have and commit adultery with Bathsheba. And then you show them the repercussions. How it destroyed his life. How it destroyed his ministry. How it destroyed his career. And you say, is this what you want? Because this is where it leads. And it's powerful. That's why it's there, you guys. God doesn't just give us moral platitudes. He shows us why. That's the importance of the Old Testament as well. You notice in the New Testament, there's, there's not a lot of narrative like that. There's a lot of principles. And the New Testament principles are then illustrated with the Old Testament stories. And we go, wow, that's why God said, don't do that. It makes sense. And David, your decision is good enough for me. That's it. I'm going to learn from that. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods. They worshipped false gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. God is such a loving God. Because I don't think I would have been moved to pity by their cries. I, would have th- I, I think I would th- just say, hey, look, you got yourself into this mess, you idiot. I told you a long time ago not to do this. Now you did it. Have fun. See you in hell. But that's not our God. It's not our God at all. In fact, our God so loved us, he was willing to send his own son to take his hot wrath upon himself. It's amazing. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. What a depressing verse. They did not cease from their own doings, what was right in their own eyes, nor from their stubborn ways. You guys, let not this be the theme of our life. May we cease from our own doings. May we break that pattern of sin. And may we allow God to break the stubbornness in our life and learn and hear from Him. May we not be rebellious. 
In verse 20, Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. And so we see this four-step process that we're going to see throughout the entire book. Israel rebels. God raises up enemy nations to chastise them. Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises up a judge to free them. You guys, we're going to see that pattern throughout this book. But let's not have that pattern be true of our own life. Let's throw aside that sin that so easily besets us. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. I wanted to have Max close us in song, but we're, uh, we're running out of time. So, Father, we are just struck with our own sinfulness, God. But, Lord, that's not what I want us to leave here with tonight. God, I want us to leave here tonight with the overwhelming understanding of your grace. That, Lord, your grace tonight would lead us to repentance and to obedience. That, God, we would recognize that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loves us. That, Lord, we don't have to give in to this stuff. And, Lord, right now we give you all the garbage. God, all the the besetting sin, Lord, the sin that is just keeping us in bondage. Lord, we thought it would make us happy. We thought it would make us free. We, we were experiencing freedom. Lord, but what we found was it was keeping us in bondage. And Lord, tonight we just give that to you. We repent. God, we ask that you would purge it out of our lives. God, we ask that you would set us on the path that leads to freedom and righteousness and to eternal life. God, we talked a lot about setting an example for our children. And I pray tonight for the parents that are here, God, including myself. Lord, we fall short so often. And God, I don't want to bind us up in legalism. Lord, I, I don't want us to, to walk away from here feeling guilty if maybe our, our kids aren't walking with you, God. What was done in the past is done in the past. But God, what I want us to do tonight is to just have you search our hearts as parents. And Lord, show us, is, are there areas that we need to do a better job of pointing our kids to Jesus? Lord, help us to be parents after your own heart. God, fill us with your spirit. Empower us to be godly parents. Jesus, we thank you tonight for your grace and your love. We thank you for the cross. And Lord, that's what we want to be mindful of as we leave this place. Your grace and your forgiveness. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.